So welcome back once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast as Keith and I continue our attempt to uh, get caught up on all of our comics reviews, making sure to highlight all the titles that closed out 2021, making sure that we don't miss anything out and that we highlight the the things that we enjoyed the most and certainly uh, do our best to attract new readers to those. So uh, again, your host is always Alan, owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes in Belfast and joined of course by Keith uh, as well. I would say how are you, but uh, we've already covered that base when we recorded the previous podcast 10 minutes ago. Which is a little confusing for the listener, but saves us a lot of time. It does, it does. But yeah, I know with these ones, as as we stated in the previous one, we're we're playing catch up. We're determined here. We're completionists. We have a little bit of OCD. We want to catch up and everything. So we're just gonna laser focus in on the reviews for the the next couple of podcasts and just focus on specific release uh, dates during that time. So this one is going to be covering the first of December, twenty twenty one, which. Geez, seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, but for this one, it was a pretty big week for both of us. So uh, mine, my titles here are a little bit lopsided, I have to say. So I have 31 <laughs> titles in total. I have 13 DC, 14 indie. So far, nice uh, nice and close. But only four Marvel, I'm afraid. Uh, what about you, Keith? What were your numbers this week? Well, I do not display that kind of bias, Alan. <laughs> Uh, I had 34 titles in total, so uh, squeaking ahead of you this this week. Uh, 11 DC, 12 Marvel, 11 Indy. Nice, nice, nice lines across the board. I am horrified at these accusations of biasness. This would never happen in my store <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, yeah, just a just a few Marvel titles for me this week, but uh, I'm pretty sure I'll be chatting about one or two of them anyway. So, but uh, yeah, you're going to kick things off for us. We're going to follow our traditional format. Honorable mentions first of all, with some minor spoilers, and then a bit more of a detailed pick of the week review, which will be a little heavier on the spoilers. So, why don't you kick things off for us with your first honorable mention for the first of December? First honourable mention is Campisi, The Dragon Incident, number four. This issue is the conclusion of another series that highlights Aftershock as a publisher that's putting out quality books that are well worth your time. Final issue sees uh, our gangster with a heart, Sonny Campisi, still trying to stop the dragon from exacting a thousand years of vengeance on the community he loves. Uh, that's Green Village. The... The, the series brilliantly, though not necessarily always comfortably, mixes gangsters and high fantasy around a protagonist who realises he's physically outmatched from the very, very start, despite the rather great uh, visual on the uh, on the front cover of Sony and a baseball bat facing the dragon down. And uh, so Sony chooses to use his people skills that make him so popular in his community and an asset to his boss. Understanding the dragon is much more than a mindless engine of destruction, but a thinking feeling creature with its own completely understandable drives um the the dragon crap has really hit the fan in this issue and it's all but certain that the dragon is going to destroy green village uh and the, the people who couldn't or wouldn't leave the neighborhood are going to die sonic and pc has one last desperate chance to save his home uh but he's going to need some help from a an unlikely source it's a it's a solid issue closing a really imaginative series it's told very efficiently with very distinctive art and well-designed characters it's it's almost like an epic story but on a small town scale very very good stuff uh, did you read Campisi? I did not know that after issue one this proved a little tricky to source other than for uh, pull list customers but it's from the creative team who did the equally good by the sounds of it uh, Kaiju score which is one I really enjoyed and I believe is coming back for a sequel in March as well Kaiju score so does this leave a little bit of uh, scope for a sequel or is this very much a one and done volume do you think? 
Um, well, as you say, it, uh, it is by the team of James Patrick and uh, Margot Locati and uh, uh, from the, the Kaiju score uh, run. But no, I mean, the idea of the... It's a, it's a done-on-one story. It feels like a done-on-one story. Um, yes, you could expand in this world. You know, it's it's kind of our world, but with a, with a fantasy background, uh, you know, at a very different history. Um, you could expand it and you want, but... Um, Certainly, I would be very glad to see Sonic and PC again. Uh, what a great character. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know, Alan. I don't know. You, you don't have to. You wouldn't have to. And you could still be left with a with a delightful done-on-one story. You heard it here first, folks. Done-on-one. So if it comes up in a previous podcast in the future, just forget that statement. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, Campisi, the Dragon Incident number four, which, of course, was the conclusion, as Keith mentioned. So, of course, Trade Paperback will not be far behind on that one. So first up for me is uh, a DC title, unsurprisingly, but more surprisingly is that I chose it and not yourself. But that's not to say you won't agree with everything I say. So uh, this is the Nightwing annual for 2021. This is uh, it's always given a number one. I always find that a bit strange that it's. 2021 number one because it's not like there was going to be a number two but you know that aside yeah this was essentially a a release week where there were quite a lot of annuals and it was not a bad thing because i actually thought in general the dc annuals this year were actually very very good uh so with this one this was written by tom taylor so first of all a sign of quality that it's tom taylor but b it's the series regular writer on this there is a change in artist though with kian torme and daniel hdr on this so with the nightwing annual it, it of course is just you know natural that i should start out by talking about jason todd but yeah the crux of the story is jason todd caught committing murder you know big surprise right well a little bit of a surprise because in the current dc continuity jason's you know just put down his guns for good but somehow he's uh, caught on camera assassinating a federal witness and the officers escorting him but nightwing feels something doesn't add up to this and he goes out to find jason get his side of the story after some brief investigation the two inevitably clear jason's name but then have to investigate the mystery of who is setting him up and there is the the crux of the book but the main crux of this book for me was exploring the the sometimes troubled relationship between Jason Todd and Nightwing. You know, Jason Todd always had a chip on his shoulder. He was the first Robin after Dick, so he was always trying to match up to the Golden Boy, so to speak. Uh, Dick had to look at someone who was replacing him, so there was always an interesting dynamic between the two. And the flashbacks in this issue to Jason's early days as Robin are awesome, you know. Dick has not long, you know, essentially been fired by Batman, as if he can be fired by being a vigilante. But, you know, he's been fired by Batman and has become Nightwing. But, of course, he's, you know, stewing over the whole situation. As always, Alfred is there to play Peacemaker and he asks Dick to check in on the new Robin, Jason Todd, who has also been the subject of Bruce's disappointment. I mean, that man is hard to please. He is hard to please. But in this, uh, Jason Todd's been temporarily removed from the mantle of Robin. So, of course, it's only natural the two of them should team up, steal a Batmobile, and hit the, hit the streets to thwart some crime. So this, for me, this is everything an annual should be. You know, it's great art. It's simple, straightforward storytelling, tons of heart and humor, an exploration of character relationships, nods to the history of the characters, and it's all wrapped up in a standalone story. So again, as I say, the DC annuals this year, I think, have been have pretty much hit the spot a lot of the time. And my next honorable mention will also be a, a DC annual. But yeah, I thought this was the best uh, DC annual this year. So it's, I thought it was it was great how it pitched you know uh, Nightwing's sense of humor and lightheartedness against Jason's you know dark humor and darkness yeah. you know in particular you know whatever <laughs> Dick suggested that Jason take on the uh, the role of, of Crowbar Man yeah 
<laughs> that he he make the shape of a crowbar against the light in order to with his body in order to uh, strike, in order to strike to, fear to send a signal, strike fear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just great humor through it, you know. But yeah, just to, as I say, great. You know, you don't get a lot of Robin stuff. We've talked about this before, you know, with Robin and Batman. You know, you don't get a lot of early Dick Grayson stories, but you get even fewer early Jason Todd stories. And I love it when they use annuals to do this. Fill in a little bit of blanks in history. Yeah. You know, Marvel are starting to do it more and more, I find, with the, 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 you know, miniseries set during 90s continuity, X-Men Legends, Silver Surfer Rebirth etc but I, I really like it when dc do this and go back to a specific point and this is something i'll come on to later as well with uh with tinian's joker title as well so yeah i'll tell you where that has been done masterfully uh, and maybe overlooked a wee bit is charles Soule's star wars where he's deftly threading the needle you know between two of the classic movies and filling in so much space while honoring everything uh, you know, so just exactly what you're you're saying has been done on this. Um, nice, nice. I was fully expecting you to say, you know where that's being done brilliantly. There's this title called Iron Man, and it's going back to the early days of Tony Stark. <laughs> <laughs> fully expecting that. Nope, nope, nope. Um, so I'm gonna swing into the. I'm gonna keep in the uh, in the uh, the indie pool here, uh, and I'm going for Department of Truth number fourteen as one of my my picks. Number 14, I think, is a fantastic entry in what we know to be a brilliant series that perfectly fits the zeitgeist of the post-truth world in which we now live, where belief trumps facts, conspiracy theories impact the real world, and if you're an idiot, your reality is whatever you want it to be. Um, James Tinian is joined by blue and green colour artist John J. Pierce in this issue, lending a very different style from regular series cover and cover artist Martin Simmons. With a more defined line that suits this story very well. Tanian mixes truth with fiction in the style of every successful conspiracy theory to one degree or another. Here, as in reality, science fiction writer slash con artist slash head Scientology, not L. Ron Hubbard, had started dating a woman uh, who had been involved with rocket scientist Jack Parsons. Uh, the woman in question was named Sarah. She was the sister of Parsons' wife. It was the mid-1940s. The two men ended up getting involved in an occult ritual uh, known uh, as the Babylon working, uh, which is uh, well known from uh, the, the Aleister Crowley and all of that sort of stuff. They were trying to manifest the archetypical divine feminine. In the word of the Department of Truth, things are considerably more complicated. The, the woman in question is dressed in red and has a large X over each eye, and we get a deep dive into her origin. Uh, the origin of the character that has been a consistent mystery in this series since issue one, and also a deep dive into the origin of Hawk, uh, who's another fantastic uh, character. I continue to love all of the plot twists and the story turns of this series, the characters and concepts and everything. I always anticipate the coming issue. It's such a good series. Yeah, I've been massively consistent the whole way through. I mean, I loved it when it's going into the origin story of Hawk back when he was, you know, fighting in the All Valley Craddy Tournament, and you know, <laughs> oh crap, I'm getting things confused here. Different Hawk, different Hawk, <laughs> different Hawk, very different series. But watch Cobra Kai, kids, if you're not watching. Uh, yeah, no, Department of Truth continues to be great, and I, I like that they can in, implement new artists into it, and that doesn't really miss a beat. I mean, we saw this before with with one-off issues drawn by different characters as well, but. Yeah, blue and green color artist. This is a natural fit for the sort of scratchy Martin Simmons style that there is. But, mm -hmm. but I do like that you created a new uh, business card there as well for Elron Hubbard. 
writer slash con artist slash head Scientology nut. So slash um, corpse. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe recall those business cards, uh Hubbard family. But anyway, away from Department of Truth, but not away from James Tenney and the Fourth. Uh my next one up is the Joker Annual twenty twenty one number one as well. So, you know, obviously I was you know, talking about the virtues of the the DC annuals, and this was another one that really stood out. So, written by James Tinian and Matthew Rosenberg, you know these guys are really enjoying teaming up at the moment, and their output is fantastic. And then the artist on this one is Francesco Francavia, a long term favorite of mine. So, what an issue this was! You know, this is the second issue of Joker so far that goes into the history of James Gordon and the Clown Prince of Crime. You know, the first dealt with the emergence of the Joker back when Gordon was new to the city. This one deals with Gordon as his commissioner. You know, he's cleaning up the city, but he's dealing with being a single parent. New threats are emerging in the shape of corrupt cops. A crisis that has escalated so much, Gordon is firing cops. His SWAT team is working independently of him. And even Barbara and Bullock are worried about how much he's working and how much he's taking on. You know, all of this is going on as Joker's crime sprees are becoming more frequent, though. It seems to me in this uh, early iteration of the Joker, you know, he's more of a chaotic prankster at this point as opposed to a mass murderer. He's actually quite funny in this issue, you know, it harkens back to the early days of the character long before he's so obsessed with Batman and planning citywide attacks. You know, his crimes in this issue are all really, really random, showing no form of planning whatsoever. Uh, the definition of disorganized chaos, so... Yeah, I, I said about it there with Nightwing as well. I love anything that expands the history of these characters, and these early insights into Gordon are brilliant. And I cannot say enough good things about Frank Avia's art. You know, he continues to be a one of the best for me, but also one of the most unique artists around as well. So, yeah, great standalone story, but also meshes perfectly with the the, the main Joker title as well. So, yeah, Joker Annual twenty twenty one, great stuff. I thought. Yeah, enjoyed it. Harked back to one of the Jokers in the Three Jokers story as well. Yeah. He was a wee bit more chaotic prankster, um, for sure. But yeah, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this. Yeah, so that was the Joker Annual 2021. And I see you're still staying in the indie lane. This is a big indie week for you. I am continuing to swim in the indie pool with Cross to Bear number two. It's the second issue of Aftershock's Wild West meets Jack the Ripper series. And it picks up exactly where the first issue ended. Having only met our first or our issue one protagonist brother Edgar, he's a former member of the mysterious order and one of the few who has successfully left that order. Uh, in this issue, he becomes our center stage character, uh, the Ripper tearing into his contented life in the West and setting Edgar on a path for revenge that runs concurrent to that of his brother. Sinisa Banovich's art is all light and shadow. It's evoking the mood of the Wild West setting and a story that is very, very compelling and has great potential. The only drawback, I would say, is that this is likely going to be five issues or so. And, you know, with the, the first two issues seemingly spent, you know, motivating our dual protagonist, that leaves much less time to tell the story. So I would like to see this with a few more issues, you know, even at the second issue, you know, point. Uh, it really is a cool, cool story, and you know I love the Wild Westy type stuff, and especially if it's got a wee bit of a wee bit of a twist in it. Yeah, I mean this is a title I'm not on, and the only reason I'm not on it is because two titles came out around the same time that are very similar setup. Cross the Bear is one, and the other one is called The Heathens, and I'm reading The Heathens by Colin Bunn, and The Heathens is is all about like you know if evil men or women escape from the depths of hell 
that a, a team is sent after them and it focuses on them at the start going after Jack the Ripper. So I don't know, maybe there was just a little bit of a uh, a little bit of cross-contamination there. So it was sort of a case of choose one or the other. Oh, I see we have a special guest to the podcast tonight. We have top salesman and uh, employee of the month, Fizz, right there, I believe. Yes, that that that's right. Yeah, she's uh, she's just she's acting the clown, just she's just acting the clown, running about the place and and, and jumping all over the place and, and just acting like a big fool. But, I think uh, she I think just, fool nonetheless. I think she just really enjoyed all of those DC annuals and just wants to let us know about it. So <laughs> that must be that must be it. Anyway, yeah, like, even con- conversely, I'm not reading the Heathens. I am reading Cross the Bear. So maybe yeah. we, maybe we're due a swap. Yeah, I think you might be right. I think they're both going to be five issue minis. So. We'll see how we get on. But yeah, I'm going to move away from the indie stuff and away from the DC stuff and jump over to Marvel for the next one. And it's our, you know, our usual mention of Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil. Uh, so we're up to issue 36 here, written by Chip Zdarsky. The artist on this one is Manuel Garcia, uh, simply because normal series regular artist Marco Cicchetto is working on Devil's Reign at this point, which of course this issue sets up. So. Yeah, this is the final issue of Daredevil before Devil's Reign. And given that storylines have to be wrapped up, characters have to be put into position, and new upcoming threats established in advance of that event, I thought this worked really, really brilliantly. Um, I mean, it's no surprise when Zdarsky pulls this kind of thing off. He can, He's always very good at multiple spinning plates and making sure that it all makes sense. So I had held back on reading this until the first issue of Devil's Reign hit. You know, I did want to jump from one straight into the other, and I was really glad I did. You know, as it got me pumped for what was coming, and I was able to jump straight in. You know, the setup is a little similar to uh, Civil War, I think, with questions being asked about superheroes, whether they exist above the law, should they exist above the law, etc., etc. But with Daredevil 36, we get a time jump to Matt getting released from prison in the wake of his helping of the most recent threats to Hell Kitchen with cloned bullseyes running amok. You know, I've always been on Matt's side with Daredevil, but I have to say he stretched it in this issue because when he walked past the welcoming committee of Foggy, and more importantly, Kirsten McDuffie, his one-time lover, in favour of jumping into a car and driving off into the sunset, so to speak, with Elektra, I was not too happy about that. Credit for this goes to stand-in artist Manuel Garcia, who's able to portray Kirsten's sadness perfectly. I mean... She's a character that featured very prominently in the Mark Wade run, and therefore I have a bit of a soft spot for her. But yeah, a lot of the, the rest of this issue has a spending time with two very different developing relationships. You've got Wilson Fisk and Typhoid Mary, and then you've got Matt and Electra. And this is all before a very important, tense moment between Daredevil and Kingpin, just before his wedding day. You know, I, I actually cool. thought this issue is some of Sadarsky's best work so far, and that's no small compliment. You know, bring on Devil's Reign by all means. But I'm very happy to report that just before we started recording this, new previews came out. He is staying on Daredevil. I am so, so happy. Uh, this continues to be, for me anyway, Marvel's best title. Interesting. Uh, yeah, um, I would almost agree with you uh, with regard to the, the quality of the title next to Marvel's others. The the multiple clone bullseyes were almost a wee bit of a step too far for me. Mm-hmm. I think they've been that's been a wee bit of a tripping point, but probably the only tripping point in the in the run so far. Yeah, well, you'll be happy to know that those are in the rearview mirror, so we're all good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think we're going to stay with Marvel, are we? We are indeed, and uh, we're uh, we're swinging from Daredevil to Dark Hawk. Um, Dark Hawk number four has been a great series by the seemingly omnipresent Kyle Higgins, the uh, Ryan partner. The Ryan Parrott, his partner on uh, on Power Rangers, uh, who we interviewed uh, just the other night, 
um, and you can probably find that on the uh, on the Spotify podcast uh, run uh, a few episodes back. But uh, Kyle Higgins is lending his particular stylings to the reimagining of the 90s Marvel hero for 2021. The protagonist is 17-year-old Connor Young. Uh, he is the new Darkhawk, and he's just been diagnosed with MS. And on the dark side, the Darkhawk side of things, he's also just lost his best friend to the expanding forces of AIM. It's not been a great week for Connor. Um, this issue, despite also containing some powers, guest stars, and a fight scene, finally takes a minute to slow down in the best way as Connor gets a chance to sit down and talk to someone about what's been happening to him. It's a great turn that that someone is Miles Morales, Spider-Man, uh, reflecting the, the connection between the original Spider-Man and the original Darkhawk, uh, using his own experience as a now not-so-new hero to help the new guy. was a great issue, and the inclusion of Captain America wasn't even the coolest part in a series that keeps on hitting the right notes for me as a as a former 90s Darkhawk fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dark Horse is just a title I'm not overly familiar with, although if there's anybody who can lead you into a title similar to that sort of style, it is probably going to be written by Kyle Higgins, who seems to be getting a little bit everywhere at the moment, and, and that's mm -hmm. no bad thing. Quality writer, quality writer. So, yeah, from Dark Horse number four to two, number ten, written by John Lehman, art by Dan Boldwood. So, essentially, it's time for my reminder of just how good 2021's most criminally underrated image comic series is and i mean i say underrated because we only have a few like a handful of people in store who are who are enjoying the delights of chew you know this is layman's prequel slash side story to the masterful chew chew hopefully the wider world at large is more clued in which means we'll get to continue enjoying the adventures of saffron you know we this is essentially the end of the second story arc called she drunk history you know, there's lots of time traveling, grifting, fine art thievery, double crossing and sort of aha moments sprinkled, of course, with lots of humor and some very impressive artwork. You know, the the world of two, it's it's hyper stylized. You know, this is not a comic for fans of realistic artwork and adherence to real world sensibilities. This is essentially a cartoon network uh, show brought to life with expressive, interesting characters and beautifully realized rich worlds. The characters are all well-developed by now, so we know who we're rooting for. You know, the the main character, Saffron, she's a bit of an anti-hero, but she's a fantastic character. You know, you can't help but get caught up in her fast-paced personality, love of life. You know, she lives for all this chaos, and in fact, there's always the calm head that sort of thrives in it while everyone else loses theirs. You know, we, we chatted to John Lehman, you know, last year. You know, we're always in certain cheap plugs for our interviews, but there's a reason. It's because they're great. Uh, but John Lehman was such a fun guy to chat to, and he's clearly enjoying himself here and the ridiculousness of this world. And he's he said that he's many more tales to tell. And I hope this series continues for a long, long time because the format's really, really cool because he's doing self-contained five-issue story arcs, uh, which give him the freedom to not be constrained by a long-term narrative. He can just come in, tell these great stories, and hopefully do well enough to, to move on to the next one. So I believe this is a, a trade weight one for you. That is correct. One of the very, very few. Um, and it was just because I got on it late. Um, so yeah, I'll be looking forward to, to picking up trade number two in the very near future. Yeah, two number uh, 10 there. Another honorable mention. So from number 10 to number 50. Uh, and that is uh, number 50 of the Avengers. It's an 89-page supersized extravaganza, admittedly with an equally supersized price tag attached. But this is a issue 50 legacy 750 celebration and could be picked up and enjoyed without having picking up 
any of the previous 49 issues of Jason Aaron's run. And the book, the story in it suggests that he plans to stick with the Avengers for a good long time into the future. Uh, and if he keeps it up at this quality, I'll be very happy to see it. Um, throughout this supersize extravaganza, we witness the conclusion of World War She-Hulk. Uh, we finally learn the true purpose of Aaron's prehistoric uh, Avengers 1 million BC. We uncover the secret of the Iron Inquisitor. We watch the Avengers recruit some surprising new members. And we follow the Ghost Rider on a quest for vengeance across the multiverse that will spark an all-new era of Avengers history, which launched in January with the first issue of Avengers Forever, which was fantastic. Um, there's a stack of story and vignettes to fit in between two covers, but at no point does this feel overstuffed, uh, despite the inclusion of a good deal of the Marvel Universe. And every point... Of it, every part of it is interesting to the point that I wasn't ready for this giant size issue to finish, even when it did. Jason Aaron's great. We've already spoken about him with regard to his Thor run, uh, and while the art changes throughout the issue, it's always really solid and enjoyable. While Aaron's run on Avengers so far has been a little bit of a mixed bag, World War She-Hulk was great, pushing the Avengers book back up my list again, and I'm genuinely excited to see what's to come next based on this. Uh, this big super-sized extravaganza. Um, worth the picking up, even if you haven't been reading Avengers. Yeah, I mean, we have a few guys have jumped on to Avengers as a result of this issue. They, you know, it sort of advised them that this was sort of the end of one story arc, but the sort of setting up of seeds for where it was going from here. And we've had a few guys jump on it from there as well. So it seems to have uh, done the job there. I mean, is Jason Aaron on it pretty much for the foreseeable, is he? Uh, I mean, that, that hasn't been announced he hasn't you know but but certainly to, to read this you would presume that that he is you know there's a lot of there's a lot of story plans laid out here um he's also on avengers forever so i think this is his corner of the of the 616 and beyond for the foreseeable yeah cool cool so from a number 50 we take away one and go to number 49 and uh, <laughs> what a segue it's all set up perfectly all set up perfectly i'm not sure what i'll do for the next one but anyway uh deadly class 49 rick remender writing wes craig on art so i feel like just as we have a admittedly very fast and loose rule that we can't just pick every issue of the walking dead deluxe as a pick of the week i think i should also incorporate something similar for deadly class you know it's i mean it doesn't matter because you break the wick and walking dead one anyway well this is true that hence it being fast and loose fast and loose you know but with deadly class you know because of my emotional attachment to the book you know the fact that we're entering the final arc for the series i i really feel like this book is operating on a different level to almost every other book on the racks and this issue is just another reminder of how stunning this series really is so in this issue, Marcus and Sai, you know, a little bit older now, they're the very definition of what could have been are reunited. You know, Deadly Class is operating a few years down the line now with characters who have went their separate ways and are living very different lives to what they imagined back when we met them in their teenage years and at King's Dominion. You know, that this is the kind of book that, you know, when you're of an older age, you know, which unfortunately I am, you know, you, th these are the conversations you imagine characters having, you know. So the bulk of this issue literally has us just hanging out with these two characters as they talk about their lives and their regrets and what could have been and so forth. So, you know, with the time jump in this series, Marcus especially seems to have matured and become a functioning adult. You know, when he sits across the table here from, you know, what is essentially his first love, he is no longer that mature adult. He's once again a kid, he, you know, with all the good and bad that entails. You know, he snaps back to that know-it-all, had-it-all-worked-out kid, you know, whose opinions always came across as pretentious and nihilistic. 
he seemed to have got past all that, but it's amazing how reconnecting with people from your past can drag you all the way back to it, warts and all. Saya, for her part, has become so closed off that she can no longer trust anyone or open herself up in any way. But again, it's it's that hold the past has on you. As she speaks to Marcus more and more, that feeling of hope is rekindling. You know, should it be a feeling she trusts or did it always end badly with them for a reason? You know, the setup for this issue is equal parts amazing and heartbreaking. There's this sinking feeling going into those last few pages uh, where we desperately don't want it to end the way we think it's going to. And then it does, which makes it all the more heartbreaking all over again. You know, this I talk about it all the time because for me, this series continues to scale the heights. And this creative team are determined to end the series with a bang. So for me, I keep mentioning it because Deadly Class will, for me anyway, go down as one of the great independent comic series runs of all time. Oh, what an issue. I just want to read it again, just, you know, thinking about it. It's such a good issue. And uh, interesting that this isn't your pick of the week. Nope, because I'm playing with my fast and loose rule that I can pick it again. <laughs> so uh, I just will throw it out as an honorable mention. So Deadly Class oh, number 49. Good. Uh, I'm uh, going to pull a DC one now for uh, for another another quick pick and that is human target two and for me this was the best book that dc put out this week and that's in a week when a nightwing annual came out first issue was great but this one was better so i think uh, mr king is doing it again are you are you becoming a fully paid up member of the cult of king well could be could <laughs> be uh christopher chance the human target has been poisoned and he only has 11 days left to solve his own murder his primary suspects are the former members of the Justice League International. In this issue, he meets and gets to know Tora Olaf's daughter, a.k.a. Ice. The whole way through, her speech bubble, bubbles are accompanied by Chance's narrative. As, as as a private investigator, he reads her, but he still feels singularly not to fall for her charms. Christopher Chance is definitely not James Bond. Chance is much more human and much more relatable than the uh than the than 007 uh as he begins his investigation of the jla i think uh tom king has allowed chance to get off to a, a chilled start so to speak oh, uh i don't doubt things are going to get any easier for chance from here on in the pacing's great the plot for now at least has you know is much more open than many of king's other stories and smallwood's art and style throughout are amazing with a, a looser line work that I'm normally attracted to. It sort of evokes more of a, a bygone era and a vibrant, warm and sometimes neon sort of a colour. Um, very, very good and very good looking book. Are you enjoying this? Oh, very much so. I mean, you know me, fully paid up member of the Cult of Cain. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's his variety of work that's really astonishing me at the moment because this is very different to Supergirl, which is very different to Rorschach, which was very different to Strange Adventures. Human Target, yeah, this is almost like him doing his you know love letter to the noir uh, genre, which I absolutely love, and but setting it within the DC universe. And yeah, the, the art, I think it's, a, it's one of the best looking books around. And it's interesting, as you say, because it's not like a really clean sort of art style it is not interpretive but it's it's got that sort of retro 60s feel to it or yeah something. that's what i mean it, it evokes a bygone era yeah no it's a brilliant book i mean we were fortunate enough we've already read issue three as well and issue four is actually out this week and it is top of my pile uh, but only because i've already read deadly class and saga but we'll move on from that <laughs> 
So that is the honourable mentions, and we will move on to picks of the week. So just as last week's episode was two indie picks, uh, it is repeating itself here, but not only is it two indie picks, it's two picks from the same company, no less. Uh, so, yeah, again, I have to put a little asterisk beside this. Deadly Class would have been my pick of the week. Two indie titles for us, and again, but very, very different uh, titles we have. So for me, first of all, it is King of Spies number one. So this is written by Mark Millar and art by Matteo Scalera. So another week, another image number one takes on the form of pick of the week. And as good as Magic Order number one was, and it was great, this might be the best thing Mark Millar has written in years. And given that he has the incomparable Matteo Scalera on art, one of the best looking too. So... As with any great title, I think the setup is so simple that we always think, why hasn't this been done before? You know, King of Spies is a fairly scathing critique of what happens when, after a lifetime of service has been given for Queen and Country, you have to ponder, what now? You know, has it been a life well lived? If all you have to show for it is a broken down body, an empty soul, no home or family to call your own, and are of no longer of any use to Her Majesty's government? So issue one kicks off at a breakneck pace, you know, with the equivalent of a Bond movie opening sequence. Our protagonist is Roland Keane and we join him in 1990 as he races through the streets of Panama dispatching bad guys before getting onto a private plane, which allows him to get onto another private plane and eliminate his target. You know, it's all very exciting, brilliantly drawn, exactly the kind of sequence we expect in any spy story. But what you don't expect then is a jump to the modern day where Keane is now 65 and in immense pain every day. He's awarded a special medal from the Queen for all his service, but now faces uncertainty, a lack of purpose and, and retirement. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he finds out he has six months to live. So, best to live out those days peacefully and mend a few bridges, right? Not in this story. Uh, as King decides to dedicate his final days to seeking out and destroying all the evil, corrupt monsters of the world, and hopefully leave the world in a better you know, state for it. There's loads to ponder in this first issue, as I think we instantly connect with King. Yes, we may not have lived the exciting life of adventure he has, but we understand his regret and frustration that he never chose those disposable adventures and a pat on the back at the end of a successful mission over spending time with his family. And just as one adventure was over, the world had changed and he was straight back out on another. You know, I, I was thinking this reading this, maybe 006 from Goldeneye had a point all those years ago. Only to be told, good job, old chap. But the word you fought for has changed. The artwork's stellar in this series. You know, it also helps with the characterizations. You know, contrast how Keen is able to effortlessly and stylishly dispatch bad guys in his younger years with how much more of a blunt instrument he is in later years, struggling to kill quite so easily. But what's interesting though is that in both stages of his life that is depicted, he actually only appears alive when he experiences the rush of killing someone. Maybe this isn't a guy to root for after all. You know, I think this is a special creative team here working in perfect tandem to create something that should probably be quite formulaic and predictable, but is instead ridiculously fun, entertaining, and brutal. So I thought this was one of 2021's best number one issues. I thought mm, it was yeah. fantastic. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the the implication, uh, the explicit implication that uh, he he was serving his masters and like James Bond, you know, where James Bond is depicted as the hero, what we know him as is a tool of <laughs> colonial, um, colonialist imperialist bastards. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that the hero here realizes that. And what he's setting out to do is undo 
a lot of the bad that he's done. Yeah. And leave the world a better place, you know. But it's in the understanding that a lot of the things he did for for his, his imperialist masters were, were were bad things that in a movie would have been depicted as you know democracy and freedom yeah. and other such crap. Yeah. So <laughs> really interesting stuff. Yeah, great start to another Image Comics miniseries. So, Kingdom Spies number one, and as one great miniseries begins, another great miniseries ends. What was your pick of the week? Surely does, as you say, from uh, from Image. It uh, is The Me You Love in the Dark number five, as we watch what has been building finally come crashing down, both figuratively and literally, on Roe, as her vision is cleared as the murder of her curator moves us from horror to pure terror and she is forced to confront and face off against the creature that she thought she loved the actions of the unnamed eldritch boyfriend are terrifying it's abuse of the language of care it's demand to be forgiven it's deliberate ignorance of its murder of addison despite the viscera laid on the floor and it's horrific attempts to make things better by puppeting the terribly damaged corpse oh my god it's horrible stuff but the same things that have made each and every issue of this series unmissable are present here the pacing the well-constructed narrative the incredible art with fantastic use of color and tone we've seen hints throughout of the otherworldliness of the creature but it comes into full play here when it wants arms or hands for a purpose it can create them anywhere in the house We've seen images of it with lots of eyes and teeth. And, you know, this is definitely the, the most toothsome issue of the series so far. Lots and lots of teeth. <laughs> and what makes it additionally unsettling is the idea that it is taking some inspiration for its appearance from, from Rose painted artwork. Uh, she has had a hand in creating it from the start. Uh, you know, and when it all goes badly, how much of that is a reflection on her as a as an individual or as, a, as an artist or as a creator. But the real horror of this horror story is not the entity, but the manipulation and the abuse. And Corona's art, along with uh, Bolu's colours, bring this to exquisite, unflinching life, while Scotty Young gives voice to the gaslighting and the twisting that abusers often use in a way that is so chilling and unsettling. It's not an issue or even a series for the faint of heart or for those who might see their own experiences reflected in it. But at the same time, it strikes a chord that will make the story and its lessons impossible to forget. This is the end of a phenomenally beautiful and unforgettably impactful addition to the horror genre of comics, I think. Yeah, I'm really curious actually to know with Me Love in the Dark, has every single issue made it onto our either honourable mentions or pick of the week list? Because I think it might just have. Uh, this was a series, I mean, we were sold on it from the start. You know, that creative team, Scotty Young, Jorge Corona amazing stuff on middle west this moved into a, a shorter told story but you know no less impactful uh it's it's going to be hitting trade early march uh of this year it's going to collect all five issues but yeah if you're a fan of you know stephen king's stuff neil gaiman you know it's 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 a beautiful story but it's dark and disturbing you know it's you sometimes think with Scotty Young that, you know, he's all baby marble and lightness and all this kind of stuff. But yeah. as a writer, like, he knows how to explore some dark territory. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He's, uh, it, it's, it, it really is. It really is dark. It really is dark. Um, quite, quite something. Um, just having a wee look. And I think 
uh, issue one, issue two, issue three. <laughs> uh, certainly made it onto our list, so probably four and five as well. <laughs> yep, there is a little bit of a pattern there, people. It's uh, you know that's the thing. Sometimes we're reviewing stuff that it's a number one. We're recommending it as a starting point, but it's always good to go back to those titles and re-mention them as well to, to let you know that the, the quality doesn't dip. You know, it's still engaging. It's it's still something you want to continue with because, you know, it, it's easy for a number one to grab you and then, you know, maybe it, it rests on its laurels a little bit. But no, me, you love in the dark. I, I'm pretty sure we mentioned every single one of them. And I've no doubt when the trade comes out, when we're giving our numbers for that week, we'll probably be like, uh, and one image trade as well. I uh, I take it you're going to be ordering big on that. I already have. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, me love in the dark is Keith's pick of the week. That's number five, which was the final issue. And again, the trade of that is going to be hitting early March as well. So that brings to an end the first of December. So we are going to take a really quick break, and then we're going to come back with a brand new podcast, which you can flick straight to, and that will cover the eighth of December picks as well. So you can join us back here for that so i've been alan taylor and this has been keith miller you can find alan in store at coffee and heroes and on twitter where alan is at coffee and heroes one and i'm a scanny son zero zero coffee and heroes is a local comic book shop coffee shop and community hub in northern ireland based at smithfield market in the center of belfast you can find coffee and heroes on facebook twitter and instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.